Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. Hello, my name is Greg Monteith. Today's podcast returns to the summary of and response to the uh, excellent conversation that took place in the Untangling Christianity Facebook group between September 12th and September 18th. As I mentioned in the first podcast in this series, I've asked each of the people who made contributions if I could refer to their contributions and their names, and each of them have agreed. What follows uh, is then picking up the salient points made by each of them, adding some context, uh, particularly in terms of how each of the positions reflects some prominent themes or perhaps sub-themes in broader Christian culture, and then putting these comments in play with each other and with some content from the Integration Project, which is a project that I have been cre- I've created and that aims at integrating faith, and primarily Christian faith, and life, or the understandings and experiences that relate to everyday living. This podcast picks up where podcast number one in this series left off, and I begin then by addressing the reasons why considering Christianity from the perspective of what's in it for me is not only valid but necessary, and examining why this perspective likely seems foreign, if not simply wrong, to most Christians. So where does the notion of loving God for naught or loving God for no benefit to myself come from? One source, I think, is a misinterpretation of the beginning of Job, where Shatan asks, does Job fear God for nothing? The argument in this text is that Job has no reason to fear God because of his great wealth and prosperity, and so only if all of this is stripped from him will we see if Job really fears and loves God. Now, it's important to note that in Deuteronomy and elsewhere, the notion of fearing God and loving God are closely related. That's another discussion and podcast, but just so that you know that these two notions are linked, and hence the link between Job fearing God for nothing and Christians should love God for nothing. A second source, strangely enough perhaps, is overemphasizing God's sovereignty, which means God's power to judge and act with absolute determination over the created order and especially to do so eschatologically, if you will, at the end of time. Particularly, the blend of God's power, knowledge, and yet goodness in sending Jesus and sparing, and thus sparing humans from the just punishment of hell is the basis that most Christians see for God's greatness. Many Christians then promote God's greatness, and particularly God's sovereignty, expressed as God's sovereign mercy in sparing human beings from God's sovereign wrath and judgment, by claiming that God's greatness is itself more than a sufficient reward to humans for serving God. So that claiming that God's greatness is itself more than a sufficient reward to humans for serving God. In other words, for many Christians, magnifying God means extolling God's sovereignty by claiming that, while in other contexts, human needs are fulfilled by various external things, when it comes to Christianity, God meets every human need just by being God. 
God's godness is somehow sufficient to meet any type of um, particularly spiritual, emotional, etc. need that I may have. However, such a perspective actually detaches our understanding of God, humans, and how the two are best meant to relate from their biblical portrayals. In other words, the notion of promoting or magnifying God to being not simply all-sufficient, but also actually overriding or even somehow annulling human needs, misunderstands that human needs and their fulfillment through normal created commodities, food for hunger and sleep for fatigue, but also love for rejection and truth for lies, is how humans connect with God, how they maintain that connection, and how they offer due witness to the interconnectedness of life and faith. So again, if this misunderstands that both human needs and their fulfillment through normal created commodities, through the created order, in other words, is first, how humans connect with God, second, how they maintain that connection, and third, how they offer due witness to the interconnectedness of life and faith. And of course, how they embody the results of full functioning, right? Going back to that notion from the first podcast uh, and the idea uh, of becoming their best selves that is possible through living in a relationship of dependent independence with God. This is a, one of the points that I made in the previous podcast. And of course, this latter point takes us straight into the integration project because it shows the essential relationship that life and experience play in not only validating Christian truth claims about God, so acting as some of the truth values, if you will, related to those truth claims, but also in fulfilling us as human beings by having our necessary human needs met in time and space in the real world. As a further point, where God's sovereignty is exaggerated in this way, this again contributes to the disconnect that I perceive from Christians toward non-Christians. For instance, when humans are no longer, when human needs are no longer met by their corresponding values or good, this essentially demands of non-Christians that they evaluate truth, Christian truth claims according to Christian perspectives. The very thing that they do not have and they do not expect, accept. They do not have a Christian perspective and they don't accept one. This disjunction, rather than harmony, between life and faith, again reinforces the gap perceived by non-Christians between the Christians and the real world. So let's come back to this word about certainties. I used this word and I mentioned that in Anna's comment, um, I'm just going to reread that comment, that certainties play a big role. The notion that the Christians that Anna was engaging with, or that for these people, the notion that Christian understandings represent certainties, from Anna's perspective at least, seem to be very important. Here's Anna's comment again. Anna wrote, I have asked myself these same questions a thousand times, usually in the form of, will the real Jesus please stand up? Because everyone seems to have a different experience of God, different ideas about God, different certainties that all claim to be the one truth of God, to the exclusion of all other interpretations, ideas, opinions, viewpoints. 
except for those who align themselves with that person. And these certainties seem to correlate to specific traditions, belief structures, and views, or lenses, of people that all claim to be led by the same spirit of truth. It feels like each person seems to pick their favorite certainties, and they want others to align with their certainties, and they will claim, quote, biblical authority, quote, as their power-grabbing tool to force alignment. But each person or group of people, denomination, community, etc., has a different interpretation of the Bible, which they use to assert their unique grasp on God's one truth. Because, apparently, they are all more special to God than all others. So coming back to this word certainties, in any case where Christians are claiming certainty, then they are acting and thinking with, essentially, full independence. Yet by virtue of calling ourselves Christians, we are supposed to be in a relation of dependence with God. To express this another way, where Christians are claiming certainty, they are much more in alignment with Enlightenment ideals than biblical orientations. The more alarming when Christians are doing this in the context of promoting and defending claims about the Christian faith. Now, just as a note, uh, from last podcast, I mentioned that the notion of certainty, so this is about the comment I made about the Enlightenment, the notion of certainty when it comes to knowledge claims, like what things are really, quote, God's truth, quote, comes from the Enlightenment and is now referred to as modernist philosophy. From an Enlightenment or modernist perspective, certainty was not only desirable, but achievable because it was thought that the important things in life should be able to be demonstrated in a clear, indubitable fashion, in a manner that was conducive to, if you will, knowing with certainty. Now, as Anna has stated, one effect of Christians claiming certainty is the effect of forcing others to agree, trying to establish one dominant truth, or at least one dominant and fairly circumscribed domain of truth. I see two issues with this. First, this ties in with a key criticism that I've been making for some time, which is that when Christians act in this way, they discredit themselves to non-Christians. And so my argument that most Christians, most of the time, don't know how to engage with non-Christians on the non-Christians' terms. This is not simply the only manner that is loving and respectful, but as I have been stressing in comments about the integration project's emphasis on communication skills, engaging with someone on their own terms is also the only manner that is effective for real conversation and allows real dialogue to take place. Second, the notion of a dominant domain of truth rings hollow when the other person knows or believes strongly the concept that we need here is, uh, that I'm looking for really, is truth versus truth for me, which again, I will be bringing out in a future podcast. But when that other person knows or believes strongly that some things outside of that domain of truth are actually true. So, like Anna, instead of being asked to consider certain things as true or being told that certain types of truth may be trickier to interpret or less accessible, and so perhaps less valuable than others, that person is forced to choose. If the choice is not between this truth or that truth, but when we really hold something to be true for me, 
the choices between betraying myself or embracing my identity. And Anna mentioned this very clearly in her original comment. I'll go back to that for a moment. Again, I read these comments, uh, all of them in the first podcast, but to keep you tied in with what Anna was saying, Anna wrote, in a nutshell, I was given a choice between denying my personal spiritual experiences because they didn't align with church certainties, interpretations, or understandings, or being excluded from the Christian community, spiritually speaking. But I couldn't align myself with their certainties at the cost of myself and the ongoing investment that God was making in my life. So I chose exclusion. End of comment. So here again, you have this notion, this sort of conflict between certainties and creating this domain of truth and the idea that choosing against that idea is not just choosing one truth over another truth, but the choice is actually between betraying or perceived to be between betraying myself or embracing my identity. And that's very much what Anna's, the comment I just read, points to. And of course, when the matter is framed in that way, the choice is obvious. Now, here's the kicker, as far as I see it. The situation is exactly the same for non-Christians when faced with these airtight, prepackaged domains of truth that nevertheless exclude things that non-Christians know or deeply believe to be true or promote as truth as the basis of how these things have contributed to their well-being and ultimately their identity. In other words, Anna's a Christian amongst Christians, and she's feeling that she's being called to either uh, reject uh, her identity and betray herself or embrace her identity. What I'm saying is that non-Christians are in exactly the same type of situation. For example, when Christians refuse to take science seriously regarding climate change, the age of the earth, human psychology, neurology, etc., then from a non-Christian perspective, we are not presenting God's truth, but rather attempting to force someone to choose between what seems rational and real and what may have contributed a great deal to who they, how they have lived their life and who they see themselves to be, so their identity, and what seems irrational and unreal, at least. And then, on top of that, the power structure inherent in this type of interaction an interaction that smells and tastes much more like dispute than dialogue, this power structure makes non-Christians feel like they are our opponents. So the irony is that instead of showing someone how they may become their best self, a goal that most people actually hold, we are asking that person to give up or potentially feel like they're betraying their own identity, in exchange for an identity that seems hypocritical. And hypocritical insofar as Christians claim that Christianity is the knowledge that really counts. Yet Christians cannot live their lives without really counting on many other forms of knowledge that are excluded, such as medical knowledge, business knowledge, relational and scientific knowledge, to name a few. So we are essentially asking that person to give up their identity in exchange for an identity that is hypocritical, an identity 
that seems domineering. Domineering insofar as Christians often approach non-Christians by speaking and not listening. And so creating power structures that are essentially, that essentially create opposition. And an identity that is naive. Because Christians frequently claim certainty when humans cannot know with certainty, let alone when the things to be known that Christians are making claims about relate to entities that we cannot see or hear or touch. No one would accept this. Hence my emphasis in the integration project on real life and insisting that the only Christianity that makes sense and that is worth holding is one where faith and life are related in a way that is truly and appropriately reciprocal. That's a strong statement, but I'm going to state that again. My emphasis in the integration project on real life insists that only the only Christianity that makes sense and that is worth holding is one where faith and life are related in a way that is truly and appropriately reciprocal. In other words, where life informs faith just as faith informs life. And where we read and understand the Bible, in light of the world, we could say, and read or understand the world, if you will, in light of the Bible. Uh, They both inform the other. Theologically, this is about interpreting the most accurate relationship between, actually, salvation and creation. The one that best reflects both biblical and real-world information sources by doing justice to both of them. And clearly, these are both massive themes in the biblical text, and it should be in the lives of Christians. So in terms of that formulation between salvation and creation, here I would cite my mentor's uh, formulation, his way of putting it, creation frames salvation, salvation refigures creation. So I want to go back to Anna's comment. While I think it's distressing when Christians act, as Anna has described, this behavior is also very illuminating. Because while, I, while how I promote an idea does not determine the truthfulness of that idea, so the way that I come across doesn't determine whether what I'm talking about is true or not necessarily, there may be, on the one hand, some relationship between the two. And Amy has mentioned this is going to bring this up, and I'll mention, uh, read Amy's comment about this later. And there is clearly, according to Anna's comment, a strong relationship between how an idea is promoted and the recipient's willingness to consider the idea's truthfulness, or at least to remain in the conversation. And this is exactly what Anna's touching on. Uh, she felt that she was called to betray herself because of the way it was put across, the very heavy-handed, uh, very exclusionary view of truth. On the other hand, promoting or defending an idea with certainty also makes it easier for us to begin asking different sorts of questions, such as questions not just, such as questioning not just the content of the idea or belief, whether it's true or not, but the motivation of the one promoting the idea or belief. And this is a, a comment uh, or a perspective that Dan is going to raise in one of his comments that I'm going to read coming up. Breaking that down a little bit further. The value of questioning the motivation of the person promoting the idea is that beliefs about Christianity are always self-involving. That means that when Christians make claims about how Christianity represents ultimate truth or that God's love for humanity is central to Christian belief, outsiders can reasonably expect to see the impact of these claims 
in the life of the person who is making them. So we're back to the, the notion here of interpretation, which is, uh, from my perspective, the dominant notion through the thread of conversations that I'm podcasting about in these couple of podcasts here. We're back to the notion of interpretation, and here, admittedly, it's difficult to know how best to interpret the impact of Christian truth and God's love from only a few minutes of conversation. So my point here is that seeing the impact of these sorts of things on people's lives is very difficult in a very short span of time. What's more, when it comes to interpreting, it is not only a matter of how clear or tricky the subject matter is. There is also the question of the skill level of the interpreter, as well as how engaged the person is with the matter at hand, how well disposed she or he may be to the subject matter, etc., So I'm not trying to make this seem simple. There are a lot of good reasons why an interaction between Christians and non-Christians about beliefs or about Christianity can either offer a very partial picture or why it can misfire altogether. I think some, some valid reasons, right? However, and I think this is the point that I want to emphasize, one of the clearest indicators of the impact of the truthfulness of Christianity and of God's love upon us as Christians is the willingness of the Christian who is presenting or promoting Christianity to engage with the outsiders on equal terms. Engaging with outsiders on equal terms is a very clear indicator of the truthfulness of Christianity and of God's, the effect, the impact of God's love on me as a Christian. So what does this mean? Well, Listening to the other party's perspective, first of all, well enough to be able to repeat it back to that person to their satisfaction and ask them uh, questions that engage them about their views. So what type of questions? Well, find out what about my views as a Christian or my, my understandings of belief or faith seems problematic and how it seems problematic irrational, unloving, excessive, etc. We do this by incorporating a number of skills. Uh, Active listening. Um, Equal valuing. So holding their beliefs to be as valuable and as potentially truthful as my own. And that is something that for Christians is incredibly difficult to do. But there is nothing, nothing, nothing that I hold that allows me to take what might be called the epistemic high ground to say that my views are innately more truthful, more believable, and more credible than yours. The next point would be trying, aiming to bring out the real strengths in the other party's perspective. So when someone offers you a perspective, dig into it, look for what's real, what's valuable, and what's what offers um, strength rather than simply trying to formulate your response and your objection, typically, to whatever they're saying. Then the fourth point is wanting to learn as much as I can from whomever I'm speaking to or speaking with or listening to. So active listening, holding their, pardon me, their beliefs to be as valuable as my own, Um, drawing out the real strength in their arguments, and wanting to learn as much as I can from whomever I'm speaking with or listening to. Many times, the above dispositions and skills manifest in our conversation through asking productive questions. Here are some examples that I've come up with 
of the type of productive questions uh, that I think we should be asking. And that ironically, I never ever hear Christians ask of non-Christians. So here are six questions. One, if there was one thing that you wish that Christians knew or understood better about non-Christians, or that you wish that I understood better about you and your perspective, what would it be? Two, if you could change one thing about Christianity, what would that one thing be? Three, what about that thing is important to you, or what about it needs changing? Four, if you have a positive thought about God or the idea of a divine being, what is the most positive thought that you often have? Five, if you have a negative thought about God or the idea of a divine being, what is the most negative thought you often have? Six, what in your view would a constructive, valuable conversation about personal beliefs look like? And that's Maybe a question you want to ask right at the very beginning, because that could definitely be something you could use to set the tone of the conversation to understand the person, assuming that they even want to talk. So let's take all of this together and see how the content that I've offered here interfaces with the comments made earlier. If we circle back to my comments about churches having, quote, if not all the answers, then all the answers that count, And we place this beside Amy's comment. Now, Amy made a comment earlier, and I'm just going to take one line from it. The comment was, Christ slash Christianity makes a truth claim that must be addressed. It can't forever be sidestepped. End of comment. So if we place my comment about churches thinking that they have, if not all the answers, then all the answers that count, and we place this beside Amy's comment that Christ or Christianity makes a truth claim that must be addressed, it can't be sidestepped forever, then we begin to see just how tricky it can be for churches and Christians not to overstep their boundaries and act in ways that would be potentially contrary to the very goals that they claim to have and the means that they claim to use. So what do I mean? Well, here are some examples of how Christians undermine their goals and act in ways that they claim not to act. First of all, acting in unloving ways towards outsiders rather than loving ways, because Christians think that the crucial nature of their message overshadows the manner in which it is delivered, you could think of Anna's comment, and or overshadows the need for them to hear the criticisms of or learn from outsiders. Two, believing or claiming that we know in ways that we cannot, knowing with certainty, which only God can do. Three, Overlooking the very large difference, logically, between sidestepping a truth claim and simply denying it. Four, ignoring what I would call the reality, based on my experience, that any truth claim can be sidestepped or denied perpetually. Humans have the power and authority to do this. Now, I think that Amy's statement is remarkably helpful Uh, I'm going to read it again just to bring you up to speed. I read it in the last podcast, but here it is again. Amy wrote, The church and Christians should try to engage with unbelievers respectfully, where they are, of course, and acknowledge the validity of their experiences and their intelligence. But at the end of the day, Christ slash Christianity makes a truth claim that must be addressed. It can't forever be sidestepped. And although a person will become the best version of themselves once they are in right relationship with God, 
That's because right relationship with God is what we were designed for. End of comment. So again, I think that Amy's statement is remarkably helpful in that it is representative of a very broad swath of evangelical Christianity. So in my mind, step one is to engage seriously with the notion that Christians really do overstep their boundaries and or act in ways that are contrary to their own goals. And so in many cases, Christians really don't know how to engage well with outsiders and really don't do a good job at it. Step two is to address the four ways that I just mentioned that Christians overstep their boundaries or act contrary to their goals. Now, I think that addressing this fully would take another podcast. So instead, I simply want to highlight some things about the process of addressing them. First, we need to use outside informers. Second, we need to validate the basis of lived experience, or we need to road test our views. So what am I pointing at here? Well, both of these orientations are components of the integration project. My aim in saying this is not to promote the integration project per se, but rather to highlight that the integration project is not theologically motivated or derived, but has been conceived and structured so as to maximize what I might call human functionality. What we talked about, going back to what I said in the first podcast, humans are beings who function best when they are in relationships of dependent independence. So the integration project uses real-life measuring sticks, if you like, and has the goal of best functionality, or becoming one's best self, in and through establishing the most appropriate, most productive relationships of dependence. And what is the result of establishing such relationships? I'm able to be my fullest self, most independent, and through being most functional, the happiest I can be. Now, I will be honest here, I'm equating best functionality with happiness. When I'm doing that, I am essentially following St. Augustine, whose work, De Beata Vita, uh, where he extols what he calls the happy life as the chief goal of human existence. That work is seen by many Augustine scholars as the core of his entire thinking. But I think that that's, and I think that's entirely valid. Now, I can predict that many Christians are likely to object here, particularly those steeped in uh, what is known as the Westminster Confession. Uh, This is because the Westminster Confession, as article number one, identifies that, and I'm quoting here, so please excuse the out-of-date language, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, I have a few objections to raise here, but I'm going to have to wait until the next podcast. I guess we'll do a, a series of three here, and I will come back to this question of the role of the Westminster Confession, uh, how it has influenced folks. And I'm going to put this in play with with a pretty well-known biblical passage in the Gospels where Christians, I think, are given a very clear understanding that the top priority is not to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It is to love God entirely, and then it is to love yourself rightly and love others likewise. And these two things are not identical. Back and with more on that in the next podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Untangling Christianity podcast. 
A summary and resources for this episode are at our website, untanglingchristianity.com. If you'd like to join our private Facebook group or reach us by email, send your requests, questions, or even a simple hello to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is provided by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license.